Sirs, moms, ladies and gents, welcome back to the Redcoat History Podcast, the place for people who love British military history and a damn good story. Today, I'm dipping my toe into the water of the American Revolutionary War. It's a conflict many of you have asked me to cover, but to be honest, is not one I know that much about. So let's see how today goes. If it's popular, if you like it, let me know, and maybe we can do more on the subject. Today's guest is a good friend of the show, Joshua Proven. He's been on here a number of times, and he's recently had a book published called Every Hazard and Fatigue, The Siege of Pensacola, 1781. I hope you enjoy learning about this campaign as much as I did. There is one small issue I want to point out, and that's that we do refer to some maps that we're looking at and some images during the course of the interview. If you feel you'd like to see those, then please do check my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash redcoathistory where you can view the interview with all of the visuals. Before we begin, I also just want to take a moment to ask you to subscribe to my newsletter over at redcoathistory.com newsletter. When you do that, you'll get a free copy of my ebook all about the Battle of Isandlwana. The American Revolutionary War, Britain versus the 13 colonies. The fledgling United States was backed by the French, but did you know that the Spanish also weighed in against the Brits? In fact, beginning in 1779, they fought a successful campaign against the Redcoats in the area of Louisiana, Mississippi and Florida. Today I'm joined by the one and only Joshua Probin, who has just written a book about the campaign and the Spanish siege of Pensacola. It's a fascinating story and one I know literally nothing about, so we can learn together. Let's get stuck in. So let's get right into the meat of things then. The question I want to know is, how and why did the Spanish become involved in the American Revolution? Because it's not something you hear about every day. No, uh, the, the Spanish got into the, the American Revolution, quite frankly, for their own political, uh, geopolitical and military reasons. Quite apart from the cause of the United States, which they had supported as a neutral power from uh, around 1777, probably, to be honest, since the beginning of the war, they were not going to get drawn into this fight just to, um, to prove a point or score off the British. There had to be a legitimate reason for them to fight and a and a and a and a fair uh, a fair expectation of success because they'd had a bad experience in the Seven Years' War when they had just listened to the French and then come in on the side of the French just as the French were defeated and they paid for it badly. So in the in this war, when the French knocked on the door, as they had a tendency to do because they needed money and ships, um, they uh, said, well, uh, let's see about that. And they, they, this is from around 1777 onwards, uh, when the French were getting really interested in the war, and obviously they entered the war in 1778. Uh, the Spanish come in in 1779 because they take a full year to make sure all the, all the ducks are in a line, there's no deal they can do with the British about Gibraltar. They literally sort of hang it out as a as a as a sort of uh, as a a prize to the British, and they say, you know, we we may not join in this war if you just sort of uh, give a <laughs> you just sort of push this across the table to us. But the the British aren't interested, and so they it can be argued that the British sort of sacrifice the United States colonies for um for the security of gibraltar really uh why do the spanish want to be in this war at all well uh they laid out very clearly to their colonial governors in letters that were written uh letters of instruction that were written by the council of the indies and they basically outlined that we want gibraltar we want um we want the entirety of the Gulf of Mexico, uh, because obviously, uh, and that basically means West Florida, uh, which was ceded to the British uh, after the Seven Years' War. And we want to get rid of all the illegal um, loggers and merchants who are currently residing 
in uh, the vicinity of the Bay of Campeche, which you can see at the bottom of the map there, just peeking up on the uh, on the Yucatan Peninsula. Uh, they also wanted to retake Jamaica, and there was a whole there was a shopping list that they wanted. Uh, and in order to do this, they were very clever about it. They took their time. They were in an excellent position to to achieve these goals when they entered the war. And so they did, in 1779, declare war on Britain. However, not as an ally of the United States, but as an ally of France. And this was a problem for, the, for Congress, because that meant that they were tied, due to the treaty the Spanish had signed with the French, they were tied to a neutral power. Um, yeah, victory conditions were tied to a neutral power that they had no influence over because the French had promised not to, to not to make peace until the Spanish were happy about whatever was happening with Gibraltar. So they're neutral is the problem that Congress has. And it's good for the it's definitely good for the Spanish. It's unclear about the situation with the Americans, although now full independence is now looking incredibly likely because as soon as the Spanish enter with all those golden with all that golden ships, it's almost certain that there's going to be some sort of good peace deal that allows the United States to to become an independent country, but they just don't know what that's going to look like. So territory is the main thing that gets the the Spanish colonial territory and the re restoration of old monopolies is what gets the Spanish into the American Revolution. So you can see uh, West Florida and East Florida there at the bottom, and then Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina. That's all British. The Bahamas are also controlled by the British. You can't see Jamaica on this map. It's a little further south of uh, Santiago, south uh southwest of Santiago, uh, and the British control that as well. Everything else up to the line of the Mississippi uh, is Spanish, uh, except for Cap Francais uh, on Saint-Domingue, which is French. So those are the European outposts. Now, then you can see the, the, the big gap in between the current eastern seaboard of the United States and the Mississippi which has all those names like Choctaws, Muscogees, Cherokees, and Chickasaws, and that is the territory granted to the Native Americans by the, I believe it's the Townsend proclamations, which had its own effect on the American Revolution and, and its beginnings, uh, which was the what uh, settlers felt were the unfair restriction on westward expansion. Uh, and when you're talking about strategy, bearing all that in mind, there's a couple of things to remember. Starting with the Spanish, the garrisons of importance are at New Orleans and at Havana. This is for uh, ground troops and, and, of course, naval vessels, especially at the massive harbour at Havana, where uh, a large chunk of the Spanish fleet resides. The problem that the Spanish have with Louisiana, which they were, which they came into possession of through a under the table deal with the French at the end of the Seven Years' War, is that it's very difficult to defend because it's so large, and it's very difficult to supply because there's there's nowhere really near it that can offer it immediate economic and uh, economic aid. And it's, it's not, it wasn't considered at the time a place that had any use except for uh, mercantile affairs rather than say agricultural affairs. It wasn't like a, it wasn't like one of the bread boxes of an empire. It was mostly used for access to the, uh, fair trade markets and the for the cultivation of certain certain crops like indigo and that meant it had to be supplied from outside of its own territory it's it had to rely a lot on on the on on transports uh, and convoys from havana 
this isn't an accident. This, uh, because Havana was in charge of ev- all of the Caribbean islands and Louisiana. They, they had a captain general in, in Cuba who was in charge of organizing a strategy and supply for the Caribbean and, uh, and Louisiana. So for the Spanish, that means that any fight with the British is going to mostly be controlled by Havana and uh, center a lot on Louisiana. For the British, you have this curious thing, West Florida, which today it comprises a number of southern states, uh, which includes Mississippi, Louisiana, Alabama, and uh, a part of what is now Florida. The This is a backwater territory. It's not a state. There is some hope of turning it into a state, but there's not a lot going on here. Quite similar to New Orleans and Louisiana, it requires help and aid from Jamaica. It cannot really support survive without maritime uh, convoys coming in from the Caribbean to supply it with uh, food and necessaries and wood and nails to build anything. Uh, It's got big problems in terms of turning itself into a a functioning uh, state, Uh, unlike Georgia, South Carolina, uh, Georgia and the Carolinas and things like that, which are established. This is this is new territory. There's a lot of investment going on in here. Um, And there's a lot of hope that it will be turned into a a state. But of course, that gets messed up by the revolution. And it becomes a haven for loyalists and people trying to escape the fighting. Ironically, because uh, things are going to kick off down here as well. And then you have the Native Americans. And as you can see from the map, that's a large chunk of land in between the Mississippi and the Appalachians. And these uh, these nations, the principal ones involved here, the Muscogees, Chickasaws, and Choctaws. And down there in, in Florida, you have the beginning of the Seminole Nation. You have uh, these these nations are very important to the to the diplomacy and to the politics of the area. Be, just because, you, as you can see, no European has much influence inside that. It's all controlled by the various nations, and they can field a lot of warriors to whoever's side they're on. So a massive amount of what gets us here and the conditions under which people fight uh, in the deep south is is affected by these these nations in between the mississippi and the appalachians uh, and the fact that it's very difficult to supply large uh, amounts of troops along the gulf coast and so just to clarify then josh especially maybe for some of our american viewers. The Spanish didn't join this war because they had any sense of, you know, wanting to support the American Revolution. They joined it purely for their own selfish reasons. Would that be fair or am I being a bit harsh there? No, I don't think, I don't think it's harsh. I think it's completely fair. Um, and uh, although, I mean, it's it, it could be taken in a negative light, but it, it's just identifying a very sensible posture, really. The Spanish are the largest colonial power in the Americas at this time. Uh, once the French were kicked out in 1763-64, you have the British and the Spanish as the only going concerns from Europe in, in, in what is now the United States, Central America, or just the Americas, really. And... They therefore have a vested interest in in seeing what's going on when the when the when the when the British Americans they had a lot of trouble figuring out what to call them because uh, Americano is just the, you know the Spanish already have a word for American their own Americans Americanos and Mexicanos etc uh, so they had a lot of trouble trying to figure out how to differentiate between the rebels and the and the British because they just would call them. Um, you know, uh, uh, Anglos and <laughs> and things like that. Uh, so 
No, it's it's completely fair uh, to say that they got into it first for for their own reasons, and it's I think it's completely natural that they should do so because uh, they wanted to get something out of the war. Uh, uh, Francisco de Saavedra, who is a king's, the king's commissioner in, in in the Americas during the war, laid it out fairly um, accurately, I think, when he he wrote about you know any war is an economic nightmare where even if you win but you have to win otherwise you lose even more but getting into a war is a very serious business and you can wreck the country in doing it so you have to be very careful about just diving into things and the spanish didn't in this war they were very careful about it and it paid off for them well, so let's move on then. So, war, you know, the Spanish have now got involved in the war and they've got a local commander called Bernardo de Galvez. What's his situation? Who was he? And what sort of uh, troop numbers did he have at his disposal? Uh, Bernardo de Galvez is one of my new favourite people in history. Uh, he, he's he's a, a semi-ridiculous figure in, in some ways. He's I often joke that he is... Uh, almost embarrassing to talk about uh, in terms of non-fiction because it just sounds like somebody made him up from the last of the Mo from, from a Spanish version of the last of the Mohicans. He was a he is a, a long-standing career soldier. He's from a good family in southern Spain in Andalusia. Uh, he knows his business back to front. He's been wounded in action multiple times. Uh, and in, he's, he's approaching his middle 30s now, and people are wondering whether he, in 1779, as governor of Louisiana, whether he is just a, 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 a pampered rich boy who had a lot of important friends, uh, or if, he, if the early spark that people saw in him actually has some sort of some will have some sort of payoff because he he had vast experience across various places due to his connections but he always did fairly well in certain ways in all the posts he commanded as governor of louisiana he took this he took he was officially appointed and was well, he became acting governor in 1777, and then he was officially appointed just before the war began. He His main job is to supply the needs of American agents in New Orleans should they ask him for help. And they do ask him for help. A gentleman named Oliver Pollock comes over and says, let's do a deal. I'll pay you a certain amount of money and you give me muskets, clothes, and and food, and I'm going to send it up the Mississippi to help my cause. And Bernardo de Galvez, uh, he was a Francophile. He was a, he was a gentleman of the Enlightenment. He had certain sympathy with the idea of of liberty and things like that. He he kind of liked these uh, Americans uh, messing around with the British, uh, so he was happy to help and give them breaks. And he played the game of the cold, of the sort of the Cold War between 1777 and 1779 very well. Uh, troop, uh, his, his objectives, therefore, when war breaks out, and he'd been expecting war to break out for, for a while, and he'd been preparing for it, was to ensure the, the, the protection of New Orleans, which he felt would come under attack as soon as the British figured out they were at war. How do you defend New Orleans? Well, there had been a lot of talk on the subject in the, uh, with the various Spanish governors, uh, and they were of the opinion that you couldn't defend it and that you would have to pull all the garrisons back initially to New Orleans and then get them out to New, um, New Spain, to Mexico, because just and just use it as a sponge to insulate the rest of the Spanish empire. Galvez at first thought this was the way to do it as well. And then he thought to himself, because he was an, an, uh, an audacious man, he thought to himself, why don't I just attack? And then they can't attack me. So he'd been planning it's usually to... A good, usually a good tactic. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Attack first. Exactly. So he, he, he was, he'd been planning to attack 
the British in West Florida in order to make sure that they couldn't attack New Orleans. And he knew that the government wanted the reconquest, the reconquista, if you will, of the Gulf Coast. And that fitted in perfectly with the idea of defending New Orleans by attacking. He didn't have a lot of men to work with uh, at the beginning. He had around, he had garrison of New Orleans and this, um, this would in total maybe have come to around 2000 men, but the actual amount of men he could take with him was around, I think, 1700. And his plan was to take that sort of field force of militia, regulars, Native Americans, uh, free, free, uh, free men of color, and go and attack the British fortifications along the Mississippi, make them Spanish, and then move on to Mobile, which is the second city of West Florida, and then Pensacola. That's that's Bernardo de Galvez's plan, and um, he, this this is this is um, this is delayed, or or people think it. <laughs> this is delayed when a hurricane hits New Orleans and it sinks his ships and it ruins some of his supplies, and people think it's he won't be able to now continue with his plan. But this is the thing with Bernardo de Galvez. This is why he's he's such an interesting person. He he gets he he overcomes this obstacle with the help of a, a very good staff. It has to be said, within a matter of uh, I think it's a matter of weeks, and it although it could have been as as long as a month, and is able to continue with his plan, and this uh, becomes the famous Marcha de Galvez. Uh, where, and which opens the campaign of the of the Gulf Coast in 1779, and suddenly the British find that they have uh, an, a very reinvigorated Spanish uh, war effort to deal with. So now we've heard a bit about de Galvez and his Spanish forces. Can you tell us a bit about the British forces in the region? What was who was the commander, and what sort of forces did he have available? Yeah, uh, the, the commander of the British forces in West Florida <clears throat> is the British commander-in-chief, uh, John Campbell, uh, Major General John Campbell. And he has the largest British garrison in West Florida. It's around 2,000 men strong in 1781, uh, although it had been larger throughout 1780 because he had been able to call upon uh, around, <clears throat> pardon me, around 1600 uh, Muscogee, Choctaw, and Chickasaw allies during that time. However, by the time of the main siege, most of these people had gone home. Uh, Campbell uh, didn't really know how to effectively use the great um, advantage he had in allied warriors. He wasn't terribly keen on working with Native Americans. He had some prejudices, let's put it that way. And <clears throat> therefore a, a very potent weapon against the Spanish went underutilized. Uh, but it was a strong fort and he was a, a, a fairly capable soldier. And he once he was given a clear objective that he didn't have to make it, uh, any massive decisions about, uh, he could, be quite a, a, as you can see from the picture, quite a redoubtable foe. Uh, I want to clarify that Bernardo de Galvez did not come against Pensacola with 1,700 men. I mentioned a number earlier, uh, pardon me, I mentioned a number earlier, which was completely to do with the, the beginning of the Spanish campaign in 1779. However, by the time you get to the Siege of Pensacola, Bernardo de Galvez has, uh, at the beginning, around a uh, parity of forces with the British, and then as it goes on, he gets more and more reinforcements until it's around 7,500 men. Um, so quite a lot of men on either side, um, 
with an almost overwhelming advantage to the Spanish by the end. However, at the beginning, it's almost even. Okay, well, that's that set up the background then, and then moving into the narrative of the fighting. Can you give us a bit of an overview of how the campaign played out, and then we'll move into the, the actual siege of Pensacola? So, uh, the, this is the, you want the 1780-1781 sort of Pensacola campaign rather than the whole Gulf Coast campaign, or...? Yeah, I think we can stay quite focused, but feel free to broaden it as much as you think we need to, to, to explain what's happening. Okay. Uh, well, after the Marcha de Galvez, you get the, the capture of Mobile in 1780, which was, again, a very dramatic uh, ev event uh, because Galvez is in command and he gets shipwrecked and there's a lot of a lot of insane sh shenanigans that go on with that, but the Spanish capture Mobile. So all that's left of West Florida now is the district of Pensacola. And the uh, British commander, uh, General Campbell, uh, is desperately writing letters for uh, a naval squadron to come and secure his uh, port so that the Spanish can't just come up and take it. So... Uh, uh, yeah, as you can see from this very nice map here, uh, the basic, the the strategic and tactical options available to the the commanders are somewhat dominated by the the fact that Pensacola sits on a bay, and the terrain is very difficult, and it's quite di and there's only one way into the bay, and that's going to be a problem for the Spanish going on. Uh, in early yeah, as of the turn of the year 1781, the Spanish still had not been able to mount an effective attack against Pensacola, and the British were stunned by this. However, there'd been a lot of politicking and squabbling going on at Havana about how many men were needed, how many ships were needed, when it was going to happen, who was going to command the attack on Pensacola. <coughs> and then there was another hurricane. <coughs> Pardon me. Then there was another hurricane. Um, which which scattered the fleet that was supposed to attack Pensacola in 1780, uh, <clears throat> and that delayed things again. Uh, the, the the great uh, break came for Galvez when Campbell, feeling that he was, um, as he put it, as yet unattacked, sent a, a, a force to attack what was called La Aldea del Mobile, uh, Mobile, which is um, a small village on the opposite side of Mobile Bay, which the Spanish had fortified and uh, was now becoming a sort of a, a, a point, a, a drop-off point for raiders and, and traders, and the British didn't like that very much. So the, a battle occurred at La Aldea, which... One participant called Bunker Hill and Mi pardon me, uh, which one participant called Bunker Hill and Miniature, and which is uh, the costliest day in terms of cash in terms of casualties that uh, Alabama uh, saw in in the American Revolution. This attack is very interesting. We don't have time to go into it, but. The, the British, are let, the British uh, or rather I should say uh, German and loyalist forces, is there weren't a lot of British involved, uh, and Native American forces, were uh, flung against this fortification and uh, they were repulsed by the troops, uh, by, by, the, by the Spanish garrison of the small fort that had been built there. And this... This reverse was was pretty bad tactically for the British because um, the 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 commander of the Third Valdeck Regiment was killed there, and he was he was considered one of the best officers in Pensacola. But it was also bad because this gave the Spanish uh, this gave Valdez's party in Havana the 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 motive the political uh, motivation to be able to say, hey, if we don't attack Pensacola really soon, then they're just going to start taking back everything we just took. So let us go 
and deal with this. More politicking follows uh, until uh, it's until March of 1781, and it's still not quite clear what is being agreed to when Galvez sets sail with his initial force from Cuba, which is set to uh, link up with his uh, friend and subordinate Jose de Espeleta uh, at Pensacola, which should give him around two to 3,000 men in total to attack Pensacola. This would be in, probably an, an inadequate force to do this with, despite the fact they have a very powerful naval presence, because, as I've said before, Pensacola is defended by around 2,000 men a lot of cannons and a lot of forts so you need quite an quite a larger quite you need quite an extensive force to, to take this place it's the largest garrison galvez has come up against so far and that gets you the, to the siege of pensacola galvez is, uh, puts to sea he is supposed to go to new orleans uh and link up directly but he actually gets the 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 Navy commander to sail him straight to Pensacola so he doesn't lose any more time, which is again fairly typical of the sort of guy he was. And uh, then then the siege begins. Well, so let's talk about that then. So can you can you explain how the siege progressed? Was there was there some serious fighting? Was there attempts to storm to storm the forts and the walls around the city? What what happened? So, the Siege of Pensacola is the longest siege uh, in North America during the American Revolution. You can argue that it's the longest siege in American history if you discount certain sieges in the American Civil War, but we would have to start arguing with American Civil War people about that, and we're not going to do that here. So, it's long. It lasts from about mid-March to early May. And it includes a lot of troops and a lot of operations in that time. The first operation is to get Spanish troops onto the island, the barrier island of Santa Rosa, and to get the fleet past uh, the battery at what they call the Barrancas Colorados, or the Red Cliffs, which guards the entrance to Pensacola uh, Harbor. Despite being happy enough, that's this this picture that just came up here actually is is a good um, example of the sort of terrain that you'd get on Santa Rosa Island, which is sort of duny and lots of palms and little lakes and inlets and things like that. That's where the Spanish first landed in March of 1781, and to their surprise, they found it undefended because the British had not had time to build a battery on what they called Sequenza Point, which would have completely covered both sides of the entrance to the harbour, which was a very decisive, um, which was which turned out to be very decisive for the rest of the siege. Was that due to ineptitude, Josh, or, or were there extenuating circumstances in defence of the British and their commanders? There was certain, there were certain uh, extenuating circumstances, to be fair to General Campbell. He knew that, I, I believe that if he'd had more time, he would have built a, uh, a, tried to build a fort at Seguenza Point and fortify Santa Rosa, because it's a very difficult thing to defend because it was incredibly long. It is incredibly long, it's still there. It's incredibly long. So if you, if you put a battery on Seguenza Point, you'd also have to put fortifications further down the island, as you can see there, um, to defend the battery from being attacked from the, from the rear. The problems with trying to guard Pensacola Bay is, is, is really quite difficult. It, it's actually perennial in the history of Pensacola itself. The Spanish had, had through trial and error, realized that you needed a battery on either side of the passage because it's over a mile long, and that's extreme range for a cannon to fire at. Uh, so you need two batteries to defend it. The problem is Santa Rosa is made of beautiful packed coral sand, and it is a barrier island, so it's, it's, it's hammered by the elements. 
So it's very difficult to construct timber fortifications, earthen timber fortifications on sand. And so, and that means it's very expensive to do. And Campbell had basically just finished the, the battery on the Barrancas Coloradas and put some very heavy caliber cannons in it. He was very proud of this. Uh, if, if you need a reference for where the Barrancas Coloradas is, it's right. It, it would, the, this map is, is, is not the best one you'll see, but it's, it's sort of where the reef of rocks label is sort of. Yeah, I can see. Um, and I'll ring, I'll ring that so people can see it clearly. Yeah. Uh, that's where it is, and you can see Seguenza Point. Um, funnily enough, there's a little fort icon there for some reason. Uh, maybe it's indicating the fort that was nearly built, because when the Spanish landed on Santa Rosa, they found some half-finished fortification works and uh, a small blockhouse. But they were—they managed to take Santa Rosa without uh, trouble, and Galvez poured his troops onto it, and... Then his next challenge was getting the Navy to just run the guns of the Barrancas Coloradas, which they were, I mean, naturally they were very reluctant to do because these were, I think they were um, 32, 38 pounders or something like that in the, in the British battery on the Red Cliffs. Uh, and also the, 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 the commander, Jefe de Esquadra, um, Calvo, he he had a bad he he had had some bad luck trying to cross the bar into uh, and get into Pensacola Harbor. His biggest ship, the San Ramon, his his flagship, had grounded very briefly when they had tried to cross the bar, and he'd come under fire from the British battery, and he got kind of the wind up because that's a very bad position to be in. If you can't move a ship and, and under the presence of an enemy uh, gun battery. And so he turned the entire fleet around back to its anchorage. And then there, uh, and there followed this very long, quite drawn out argument between the army and the Navy about whether or not ships could pass the bar and whether the, the British battery was effective or not. Galvez made a test where he had his one of his engineers start building a battery at Seguenza Point, and it, it drew the fire of the of the what the British call the Royal Navy Redoubt at the Barrancas Coloradas. And wily old Galvez was watching this very carefully, and he noticed, and this is where a bit of the incompetence came in that wasn't there with the unavoidable fact that you that Campbell didn't have time or money to build a, a meaningful fortification on Santa Rosa. Um, he noticed that the Redcliffe battery was actually firing very high and quite long. And that's because you've got a bunch of 32 or 38 pounder massive cannons emplaced on a height so they can't depress their gun muzzles to the level where they're going to be a problem for ships. Galvez has noticed this, but he can't, he can't persuade the Navy that actually this battery, which looks really scary, has been improperly placed. And so he resorts to this ridiculous piece of theater where he, he gets into his own flagship because he's the governor of Louisiana and he has a small flotilla uh, and he raises a, a naval broad pennant from it as if he's a, a, a chief of squadron so that's the first slap in the face to Calvo then he sends one of his engineers with a with a with a with a cannonball that has been picked up from the ground fired from the Barrancas and he he sends it aboard the San Ramon with this ridiculous challenge that that those with honor and courage should follow him, and he gets into his little his little brig called the Galveston, and they sail straight over the bar under the fire of the of the British guns, right round to the other side of Santa Rosa Island, and all the troops start to cheer and lose their minds because Galvez has done it again, 
and Calvo is incandescent with rage. <laughs> he, thre he threatens threatens to have Galvez executed for treason and all sorts of stuff. But there's very little he can do because Galvez has literally just proved to the entire fleet that you can get ships over the bar and the British can't touch them. So he stamps his foot for about a day and then finally allows the, the fleet to pass through all except the, the San Ramon, which he is correct in saying cannot pass the bar because it's too big. Unfortunately, this looks kind of bad on his side because he then leaves and goes back to Cuba, which just makes him look petty. That was a rather poorly considered um, move on his part. Anyway, from that point, you get the next phase, which is the Spanish looking for a encampment ground where they can safely hoard all their supplies and then begin digging their trenches. But at this point, you have the reinforcements from Louisiana under Espeleta and Galvez United. That's around 3,500 3, men about. And in this period, you get, which is somewhat between, uh, I think, the middle of March and, uh, yeah, the middle and the end of March, uh, April, sorry, what April, um, you get the first skirmishes, first fights between the British and the Spanish as the Spanish are trying to establish a camp. Uh, there are several camps. Um, uh, the, 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 the Spanish construct several camps and before finally settling on the one that they will they'll use for the rest of the siege. All the other camps they they're usually found to be inadequate in some way they're either too close to pensacola for to be, be and vulnerable therefore to attacks from the the choctaw warriors uh who are uh, who are with the british under a a formidable war chief called uh Francis Mastabe. and or or they are are too close to the artillery they, they think they're too close to the british artillery uh or they're poorly sighted for supplies to be able to be um uh, delivered to them by the navy or they're too small um it's a bit of a goldilocks problem but they they eventually settle on a an ideal position that can't easily be um um it can't easily be seen can't easily be attacked and can easily be supplied. And that's all ideal circumstances. By this point, of course, there's been some very heavy skirmishing. Several things have happened. The British Native American allies have become dissatisfied by the fact that the British have been using them as the main attacking force. They're very dissatisfied that they've been having to fight the Spanish basically by themselves. Uh, and Galvez has been wounded in one of the in the main in the main movement from the to the to the last camp. And by the way, the the Native Americans have been so effective in harassing the Spanish camps that Galvez ordered that the camps be fortified, like Caesar, like a Roman army camp. Uh, he was wounded in the uh, in the I think it's the left hand uh left hand and the abdomen this is kind of a vague wound and i don't and it's never said explicitly how his hand is is injured because i've read it that uh the ball broke one of his fingers but to my mind that would mean he probably lost it because you know if a, if a musket ball hits your finger it's kind of over right <laughs> but the uh, and it's but and it went across it went across his his stomach, I believe, and this this knocked him out of action for a while. Uh, it's a fairly serious wound. It, it probably wasn't life threatening, so long as the surgeons were careful about infection. But it he had had a problem with fever before, and this seemed to set him back a little. And for the rest of this portion of the siege, for the rest of the entrenching portion of the siege, when they're starting to progress there their trenches and fortifications and batteries, Galvez is forced to take a back seat to, while he recovers because a big storm comes over the night after he gets wounded and it blows over his tent and it soaks him. And 
uh, and a lot of the wounded. And that doesn't do them any good either. So then you get the entrenching phase, which is now we've found the camp. Now we need to find, find where best to attack Pensacola from directly. Pensacola is defended by a hill, a small hill called Gage Hill. And on this hill, you have three fortifications, three earthen fortifications, uh, which are called, con which contemporarily speaking, there's one, that's Fort George. That's the one closest to Pensacola you'll see on the screen now. Uh, and it was made by putting a star fort and a, a line of uh, entrenchments down to uh, two blockhouses, which uh, guarded the road to Mobile. Further up from the from from Fort George, you had the center redoubt, or the middle redoubt. The Spanish called it uh, Fuerte de Sombrero, which uh, which is the the hat redoubt, the hat fort, because they thought it looked like a round hat from the, from a distance. And that doesn't play a great part in the siege. They put that's actually the last fort to be built because. It connects the furthest away fort, which is the advanced redoubt, uh, which the Spanish call uh, the Medio Luna, uh, which is just the Spanish version of the French technical term Demi Lune, half moon fort. So it's a crescent shaped fort. Uh, all of these forts connected in a string protect Pensacola. It's very significant that they do this because that means you don't have to attack the town itself. And Galvez, one of the first things he did when he landed, which is what he did at Mobile as well, was to write a letter to General Campbell and to the uh, civilian governor, uh, Peter Chester, to, uh, to sort out the ground rules, to establish the ground rules of the siege. Uh, basically, they all agreed, we're not going to fight over the town we're going to uh, we're going to fight over the forts, the military installations. That's what we're going to attack, and we're both going to agree to do this, uh, and we're going to do this in a civilized manner. And the civilians can stay there if they want, and a lot of them do. So, all of the fighting is going on uh, around the military installations, which is a very civil civilized, a very humane thing to do, I think, and. The, the problem, of course, that represents is that the Spanish can't really use their ships because Pensacola, at least to bombard stuff, because Pensacola, they would have to fire over Pensacola to hit the stuff on Gage Hill. And that means the British are going to have to fire back over the town or probably from the beach and stuff is going to get hit by shells and, and things like that. And that's... That, and Galvez is a proud man, he's a man of honor, he doesn't want to be seen to be breaking his word. So he doesn't use the navy to bombard the fortifications from the sea, which would have sped up the, the siege quite dramatically, I think. So instead they look for entrenching grounds, and they find one at a place called um, uh, Pino Gordo, which just means big pine. Uh, it's a place that doesn't really exist anymore. There must have been some very large pines standing where they found uh, at the edge of a small height, uh, which overlooked a equally modest valley on the in the middle of uh, between Gage Hill and Pinogordo. The Spanish chose this, but the problem was that what the British found out that was where they wanted to attack, and more heavy skirmishing occurs uh, as the Spanish try to get work parties out to start breaking ground. And the British artillery is uh, very powerful and controls this area as well. Galvez doesn't like wasting men. He could, by this point, he's been, re he's been reinforced significantly and he has almost 7,000 men now, including a small French detachment. He could just use his men's lives flagrantly. He could just use that power, uh, that manpower he has, but he doesn't see the need to lose men's lives unnecessarily just by exposing them to the fire of the forts of Pensacola. He can do it another way, and just because it's harder to do it the other way, 
doesn't mean he's not going to do it. In fact, he does. What he does is he or Espilete or General Cagigal, who is in charge of the reinforcements, <clears throat> decide that uh, they will use very large work parties to work extremely fast through the night uh, to get the fortifications up. This, after quite a, a significant amount of skirmishing, is successful, and batteries start to be in place. And this is the now come into the last phase of the siege. The Spanish start to successfully construct their siege lines in place, their howitzers and heavy artillery brought up from the ships, and begin to give a bit of the give the British a bit of their own medicine. The British forts now come under fire and Campbell becomes increasingly worried. He's been increasingly worried throughout the siege that he won't be able to hold the place for any length of time. And indeed, once the Spanish start get, to get going, it see, he seems to be being proved correct. Um, there's a scare at one point where a shell lands near an ammunition caisson uh, because every morning the 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 quartermasters dole out cartridges and that goes up that goes up in a blue light, which is really, really quite um, spooky because I think it's just a few days later, another shell skips over the bomb-proof roof of one of the, um, uh, of the advanced redoubt, lands in the, at the open door of the, of the main magazine, and the entire central section of the advanced redoubt explodes, killing everybody. Uh, for, and for a second, everybody is stunned because it was just supposed to be a normal day of bombarding. And then everything happens at once. The British start to ma uh, quickly evacuate what they can from central the, the advanced redoubt. The Royal Artillery under Captain Johnson um, uh, opens fire to cover the retreat, and they continue in spite of the flames and Spanish counterfire until the last possible moment, uh, an act which surely would have got Captain Johnson the Victoria Cross in a later time. And the Spanish react incredibly fast to the, the advantage that has just been presented to them. As uh, Jose de Espeleta and uh, General Cagigal, uh, Chief of Engineer Navia, uh, push columns forward against the advanced redoubt of Grenadiers and Cazadores, the elite troops of the Spanish army. And they're led by uh, Navia's engineers who are equipped with firefighting gear because the, play, the, the, the redoubt is burning. And they take the ruins. Um, they come under very heavy fire from the central redoubt and Fort George, but they, they secure it. And now... And then they, they, they push artillery up very quickly and open fire in return so as to show the British that we have this place now and you can't shift us from it. And inevitably, that leads to the surrender of Pensacola. Okay, well, what, I, I feel like the British are kind of guilty here of just sitting back and, and waiting and not really doing much is that is that what actually happened did did Campbell kind of run out of ideas and just sit back and hope for the best you know it's, it's that is one of the big questions of the siege um could Campbell have done more I think that he could have yes I think there were I mean the uh, Franchi Mastabe thought he could have done more um Cameron of the Indian Department thought he could have done more. Some of the loyalists thought he could have done more. Uh, the Germans didn't really care at this point. They just wanted to get out of West Florida. But um, certainly if they had their old commander with them, uh, Colonel um, Hansleben, he would have done more. So I think you're right in identifying that the British don't put up as active a defense as they could have, especially earlier on when they had a more of a parity in numbers. Um, and they really only wait to try to aggressively fight the Spanish when they have established their camp and they're looking for an entrenching ground, by which time 
the number game is severely stacked against them. Campbell, I think, can be criticized as much as we can from our position um, for not putting up a more aggressive defense. So the city's fallen. Did Campbell officially surrender as such? And was the, you know, were the defending force all taken prisoner? What happened? Yes, there was a formal sur surrender ceremony. Campbell um, uh, shuffled off about three or 400 men immediately after the first treaty negotiations opened. He sent them off to Georgia uh, for, I don't exactly know who, how, how he chose who got to get out, but about three or 400 men did leave. Uh, also the Choctaws headed off obviously. And then it was just a matter of finalizing the terms. Uh, this was this was this was uh, pretty much decided in, in about twenty four hours, and um, the garrison was given the honors of war, and they marched out, uh, colors flying, drums beating. They were allowed to carry, uh, you know, all the ceremonial uh, paraphernalia of a of a surrender. And they were waved off to a camp by Galvez, and the <clears throat> and the works were occupied by the Spanish grenadiers and cazadores and some of the French light infantry. And um, and there uh, and that was that was the surrender ceremony, and everybody got uh, all the prisoners spent uh, a a good deal of the summer while Galvez and Campbell argued about various points that they thought the other had broken. Uh, about the convention of uh, uh, the convention of Fort George, as they called it, until all that was sorted out, and then they got repatriated to, I believe, it was New York and Halifax. So the Spanish <clears throat> gave all the troops back, which really annoyed Congress. But again, you have to remember that the Spanish were not allies with the United States; they were allies with the French, and they saw no reason to keep. The British prisoners for any longer than they needed to. Uh, Galvez was close to the end of his supplies. He probably didn't have the means to properly do much with them, and, and he just wanted to get them off his hands, um, which is sort of what the excuse was that Washington kind of nodded at and said, "I I, I can't believe that Galvez would um, would be so." Um, do something so detrimental to our cause, and I believe there were extenuating circumstances or something like that. But uh, unlike the Saratoga army, which got um, uh, marched around to its demise, the Spanish sent uh, Campbell and his troops back to a friendly port. Brilliant. And, and how important strategically was the fall of Pensacola for the for the Revolutionary War, the broader war, was it was it very important? Did it make a big difference, and did it really help the you know the the American victory? It's it's inter it's it, it, it's important is incidental but important um, because it ends in uh, it ends on the eighth of May, seventeen eighty one, and then nobody knows that Yorktown is going to happen in October of 1781. So to begin with, the fact that the Spanish now control the entire Gulf Coast means it, it is a very big deal. And it means that there's now the potential for American merchants to have uh, unimpeded access to fret neutral ports bypassing the British blockade. Uh, and so that's that's a very important strategic uh, element to the fall of Pensacola, which of course is not massively realized because the war ends effectively very soon afterwards. But nevertheless, you know that's hindsight. Then you have the fact that the, because it ends when it does, Spanish uh, resources can now go into joint efforts with the French. And immediately after the siege ended, you have Francisco de Saavedra going to go and talk to the, uh, talk to the French about joint efforts uh, between the two Bourbon allies to attack either Jamaica or some other target like that. And also to um, 
to think up of a think up a plan that will ensure the independence of the, of the or the victory at least of the United States. This is this goes into the complexity of the of the diploma, diplomacy and politics of the time because it was within the best interests of the Spanish to ensure the independence of the United States because that hurts the British, but they couldn't help actively themselves because they hadn't recognized the congressional government at the time. <clears throat> the fly in the ointment becomes the fact that um, the French fleet has no money. Otherwise, they have this, 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 this wonderful idea of heading off to Virginia and bottling up Cornwallis between um, the French and General Washington. And Washington is waiting for a signal. He's waiting for the French fleet under de Grasse to put to sea in order to start marching <clears throat> towards Cornwallis. Problem is, the French Admiral de Grasse has no money and he has no ships to uh, guard Saint-Domingue uh, when the Spanish, uh, uh, when, if, if he does go, is the problem. And, for, and Saavedra tells him, well, we, we the Spanish have money and we have ships. So we can't go and help you in Virginia, but we can guard Saint-Domingue and we can give you money to get you there. So on his way to uh, Yorktown, de Grasse stops by Havana, where there's been a whip around, and they they give him uh, about 500,000 to a million pesos. And that gets him to sea, and that gets him to Yorktown, and that gets Washington marching. And then shortly thereafter, the Spanish Voluntary War Fund comes in from Veracruz, which is about 2 million pesos, and half of that gets sent to General Rochambeau's forces at Yorktown to help pay for the siege. So, again, it's incidental, it's indirect, but there is actually a fairly decent argument to be made that if Pensacola doesn't end when it does, and if the Spanish aren't in a position to freely shift troops and money around, then Yorktown doesn't happen when it does. Okay, well, uh, I guess my final question then is, has the Spanish contribution to the American Revolutionary War maybe been a little bit forgotten, a little bit overlooked, or, or actually is it very celebrated in the US? Uh, it's been very overlooked for, um, for the majority of the time, to be honest, because as we've as we talked about a little, <clears throat> the the Spanish were in it for themselves. Essentially, they weren't fighting for America for for liberty in America, particularly. I mean, they had very strong ideas about what um, liberty looked like, and they would prefer they preferred liberty to be granted by the king, not by the arms of some rebel government. So they had no particular interest in encouraging revolutions, let's put it that way. They, they did, had no interest at all. I mean, it's just insanity to encourage revolutions, especially amongst the middle classes and the criollos who were already, who were already um, agitating for various rights as uh, Spanish, as Spaniards. And that would obviously lead to a big independence movement in the next century, but at the second, the Spanish were not about to encourage it in their own colonies by helping out the Americans and giving some sort of precedent. So there's that. That is also that's already a bar against recognizing the Spanish contribution to American independence because it doesn't fit in with the narrative of the um, the the freedom fighting lovers of liberty Yankee militia. Um, and, you know, led by George Washington across the Delaware to freedom clutching the flag and all that sort of thing. It's, it, it's more complicated. It's more nuanced. Then you also have um, the bigotry angle. Um, Galvez's army, especially at the beginning, was made up of, as he or his uncle called it, um, men of all nations, conditions, and colors, and they were mostly Catholic. So that's two points again against a, a a thorough or praiseworthy retelling of the of the Spanish effort. It doesn't fit in with the predominantly sort of 
all all white um saviors of america essentially that you of the of the of the legend of the american revolution yeah which is the one that grows up uh, up until the bicentennial and those things sort of collide to ensure that the spanish don't get a, a really good retail uh, the, the, yeah they don't get a lot of time in 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 history books up to that point if you if you've read any american history books if you've read any books about the american revolution the gulf coast campaign the siege of pensacola get us get a paragraph at most in most uh books about the american revolution if the spanish are mentioned at all it's the siege of gibraltar which is the only operation that went badly for them uh in the entire war everything else was successful and so they they were absolutely sidelined and not just the, not just the spanish but spanish americans because the majority of the men who made up these armies the galvez's armies especially after 1780 were drawn from places that were absolutely nowadays what you would call america the united states you know louisiana alabama um parts of the caribbean um and all across the american south um texas and mexico and things like that you know places that are most certainly not peninsular spain so it's it's not it's not fair that this is this was seen as an un-american part of the american revolution because it's very american when you think about it in those terms but luckily since the bicentennial a lot of people have recognized that and have started to look uh deeper at the at the spanish uh the spanish contribution spanish american contribution and a lot of things have been translated and a lot of a lot of that work has allowed me to write this book and perhaps another book we'll have to see Brilliant. Well, that's a fantastic segue because I was going to say if there's lots more stuff we could discuss, but if anyone wants to know more, they can read your book. Can you tell us if people want to keep in touch with you, follow your YouTube channel, your Twitter, that sort of thing, get hold of your book, fill us in. How can they do so? You can find me on uh, YouTube uh, at Adventures in History Land. And you can find me on Twitter. Uh, I still don't call it the other name because it's done. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, at uh, at Land of History, and if you find me, uh, and you can leave a comment on YouTube, or you can just uh, send a tweet to me on Twitter, and um, that 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 will I will see it, and uh, I will I will respond. Uh, the book is available at Helion. Uh, Helion and Company uh, website, uh, also on Amazon. Uh, if I don't mind where you buy it, I'm just happy that you have give, uh, that you've given me the, uh, a place in your life. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Well, thank you very much, Josh. That was fantastic. I learned a lot about about a campaign for which, until today, I knew almost zero. So, thank you.